Amen. Well, we're doing a series uh, called uh, uh, Change Makers, which I'm still kind of bummed out. I, I feel like I should have just gone cheesy and called it Game Changers. I don't know why I didn't do that. I should have done that. I, I was hesitant. I lacked courage. You can pray for me. But uh, Change Makers is really just talking about, okay, it's 2019. What are some things that could really be some change makers in our life, some game changers in our life? And, and today I, I want to talk to you about money, our relationship to money. I want to talk about generosity. And I always like to, to say about money is that, you know, as Christians, you know, there's kind of, we kind of put all ethical issues into three categories. Uh, you got money, you got power, and you got sex, okay? So those are kind of the three big ethical circles that you can put all other ethical issues in. So you got, you got money and material things and materialism. You got power and politics and what do Christians do with power? What do Christians uh, do when they find themselves in positions of power? Um, and then you've got sexuality, which is obviously a big deal. And so for Christians, biblically, with money, it's generosity. That's what Christians do with money. We practice generosity. With, uh, with sexuality, Christians practice purity. And with power, Christians practice humility. And so those are kind of the, the three big ethical things. Things. And so money is what we're talking about today, and it's a major ethical relationship that Christians are called by Jesus Christ to consider, what is my relationship with money? It's a game changer, because if you can get this right, man, your life could totally be transformed. I mean, if our relationship with money could be biblical, it'd change our life, it'd change our life. Now, when I first decided I was called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, my vision was not to be a pastor. And I'll tell you why. Because I grew up, and my best friend, J.D., he was a pastor's kid. And so I was around my pastor all the time. And then my brother married the pastor's daughter. So then in a roundabout way, I was kind of related to my pastor, which was weird. But Despite that, when I saw what a pastor goes through, I was like, I am not going to be a pastor. I'm going to be like Billy Graham. Can I get an amen? Like, I'm going to go and just, like, preach one sermon on John 3.16 and go around, drop down the gospel bomb. People can like it or not. And then I'm going to leave out of town. No big deal. Then... When God started calling me to be a pastor, I was like, well, the one thing I'm not going to talk about is I'm not going to talk about money. I'm not going to do it because nobody wants to hear the preacher and the pastor talk about money. People get uncomfortable with this. Uh, it, it reminds people of, of kind of their, their relationship with money. And for most of us, our relationship with money in one way or the other is not very good. And so the preacher talking about money is not good. But I quickly came to realize that the reason why I went into ministry was not to be like Billy Graham or, or to avoid being like my pastor the reason why I went into ministry was to see people's lives transformed. The reason why I went into ministry is so that people could have new beginnings in their life. The reason why I went into ministry is so people could have great marriages. 
The reason why I went into ministry is so I could see the gospel transform marriages and parenting and how people operate at work and their relationship to work and, and their professional life. I went into ministry to see people's lives transformed, and it quickly became apparent to me until people put their economic life into the hands of God, they cannot be transformed. Until we deal rightly and biblically with our attitude and relationship with money and God, we cannot be transformed. And what I tend to do and what many Americans do is to say, God, you know, bless my marriage and heal my kids and, 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 and provide for me and lead me to your will and your professional life for me. And, and yet, don't talk to me, God, about my money. Don't tell me what to do with my money. You see, at the end of the day, money is not an obstacle to talk about. It's an opportunity. And when we begin to get biblical with money and generosity, our lives can be transformed. Jesus, the greatest preacher of them all, talked about money more than almost any other topic. In fact, out of the 38 parables that he preached, 17 of those 38 parables are about economic issues. Why? Because Jesus came to reconcile human beings to God. And until he addressed their financial and economic issues, until they addressed that, they could not be reconciled to God. That's why Jesus said things like Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Jesus said this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You get that? See, we, we want to go to church and, and not talk about the uncomfortable thing, but it's often the uncomfortable thing that will lead us to the comforting reality of a relationship with God. And certainly in our culture, man, I mean, we're so materialistic. I'm so materialistic. Gratefully, because I'm a follower of Jesus, I've grown in my relationship to this problem. But if you are born in America, you are materialistic. I don't care who you are. We have to often address this issue of, of our relationship to money. What a game changer. What a, what a change maker in our life and in the lives of others if we can get this right. And at the end of the day, the message of the New Testament to followers of Jesus Christ is that Christians are called by God in grace through the gospel to practice radical generosity. And that could be the name of the, the sermon today is practice radical generosity. Let me say it again. Practice radical generosity. Say, okay, well, why should I? So the two questions I want to answer in terms of practicing radical generosity. Number one is why? And number two, what does radical generosity look like? What's the measure of radical generosity? So let's deal with that. And I, I want to go to a great passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 6. This is probably my favorite passage to preach on when it comes to radical generosity. And the reason why I love it is because my favorite questions to preach are why questions. I love talking about why. And the reason why is because I'm a motivator. 
Can I get an amen? I'm a motivator. And motivators love why questions. We motivators, we obsess about why. Why is this important? Why should I be generous? And, and the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 9, starting in verse 6, begins to outline why these Corinthians should be radically generous. Now let me give you just a little context before I start reading it. The context is this. Apostle Paul is taking up an offering uh, of money for poor Christians living in Jerusalem. There's Jewish poor Christians living in Jerusalem because there's a great famine. You might say it's a great depression. And the Apostle Paul has all these church plants in Gentile areas, in Macedonia, here in, in Corinth, all these churches he's planted, and he's going around to these church plants, and he's saying, listen, the original church in Jerusalem is going through impoverished situations. We need to take up an offering, take it to them so that they can get food, because we want the Jerusalem church to be well-fed, so we need to provide for the poor. And so he had asked the Corinthians to, to, to prepare an offering for when he would come so that they would give to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So that's a context. And here in a minute, I'll tell you a little bit more about that. But, but that kind of gives you the picture. And so now he's going back to this issue of this is why you should be radically generous to the church in Jerusalem. Let me read the first part. Let's look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. It says this, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, okay, radical generosity. Practice radical generosity. Why? Let me give you point number one, the reason why. First of all, because personal inward abundance is far more important than outward prosperity. Let me say that again. Inward abundance is way more beneficial and profitable than outward prosperity. There is a difference between abundance and prosperity. There is an abundance gospel you can believe in or there's a prosperity gospel you can believe in. Now, the prosperity gospel is if I do the right things, I'm going to get all the right stuff. I'm going to get all the good things. But the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christians believe that what's really important is an abundant life on the inside. Look carefully what he says. He says in verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So this is a an illustration, a parable of a farmer, right? 
And then he goes on to say that the sower, that, or that the one who gives the sower seed, gives the sower seed for the spreading of the seed. But, but, the question is, what is the seed and what is the real harvest that Paul is talking about? The seed is the gospel, giving for the gospel, and the harvest is not outward prosperity, but what? Inward abundance. He says in verse 8, look at all the times he says all. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every great car, great house, great clothes, great shoes, great sweaters. No, he says, you may abound in what? Every good work. Look down at verse 11, it says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. He says in verse 10, he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. It's interesting because what Paul's doing is he's saying, you know, what God gives to you, he's given to you to give back. And when you take what God gives to you and you give it generously, you find that God gives back to you something more than what he originally gave to you. He gives you seed, which might be money. It might be your testimony. It might be your life. It might be your talents. It might be your time with your church. It might be connecting to life group. As you take whatever seed or talents that God gives to you and you put it in the ground, God's going to give you something back, a harvest. When a farmer takes his seed, he doesn't take his seed and go, oh, I'm going to take this seed and go into my home and put it into like a little thing and just kind of like worship the seed. No, the farmer takes the seed, throws it in the ground, knowing if I grow it in the ground, there's going to be a harvest. And everything God gives to us, he gives to us to give back. And as we give back, we begin to grow in righteousness. We begin to become better and more transformed people because we begin to manifest what we already have in Jesus Christ. This is so important. I think, you know, I think, what, what's the gospel? What, what's the good news of Jesus Christ? It's that Jesus died for my sins. It's that Jesus was buried. Jesus came back to life. And here's the remarkable thing. When you and I believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says something miraculous and even mysterious happens. We receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ because our righteousness is never going to be good enough for God. All the good works, or if you gave all the money in the world, if you gave it all to the poor and gave to the church, that's not going to get you any closer to heaven. We, by faith alone, receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now the goal for our life is that we will yield to the Holy Spirit so that we will manifest what we already are in Jesus Christ. It's kind of, what's the good news? The good news is I was in prison. Jesus set me free. And he gave me a new set of clothes. I had prison clothes. And I had, you know, the yellow jumpsuit and the, the belly chain. You know what I mean? And, and I, I was all chained up. And Jesus came into my prison. And Jesus set me free. Jesus unlocked my chains and he took me outside and he put new clothes on me. But sometimes I can still act like I'm still back in prison. How about you? 
Sometimes I act like something I'm not. Sometimes I still act like I'm in bondage. Sometimes I still act like I'm unrighteous when I'm not unrighteous. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're righteous today. You say, well, but I did something unrighteous yesterday. Well, then you were acting against your nature. You were being something that you weren't. And the goal of sanctification and the goal of discipleship is to manifest what we are in Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is remarkable because he's saying, listen, here's the deal. You want to look like the righteous person that you already are in Jesus? You want to grow in manifesting outwardly these new clothes that you have in Jesus? Practice generosity. You will begin to look like what you already are, you will begin to bring about the harvest of righteousness. And so as God gives to you, you give back, and then God's going to give you something more. And then as you have something more, you give back. And here's what happens is you have inward abundance. Inward abundance. And you know what everybody's looking for in our culture, in China, in India. Did I say China just like Trump? China. China, India, Africa, South America, the uncivilized tribes of the jungles. You know what every human being is looking for? They're not looking for stuff. They're looking for peace. They're looking for inward abundance. And if you and I don't have inward abundance, we could have a mansion, and yet we're just prisoners walking in that mansion. That mansion is no different than the sales of Pontiac Correctional Facility when we don't have inward peace. There's a bunch of people who are the dead people walking. They're spiritually, I hate to say it, I'm getting fired up. They're like zombies. Why do you think the rich and the famous can't hold their life together? Why do you think the CEOs can't practice ethics? Why do you think politicians always fall short of their promises? Because they don't have inward abundance. They might have power. They might have money. They might have stuff, but they don't have marriages. They don't have kids. They don't have family. They don't have community. Paul is saying, listen, in the gospel, we've got inward abundance in Jesus Christ. And when you have inward abundance, you don't need to hoard your money. You don't, you, you, don't, you don't need all the fancy stuff anymore. You can practice radical generosity. Practice radical generosity. Why? Because inward abundance is more important than outward prosperity. Here's the second reason Paul gives. Legacy is more important than luxury. Now, it sounds like I'm saying the same thing, but I'm really not, because the first point is about what's going on on the inside of us, and that's really important, and God loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you to have peace with God, with yourself, with nature, with people. Jesus wants you to have peace on the inside, but the second thing Jesus wants you to have is legacy in the lives of other people. Life is about legacy, not luxury. Life is about contributing, not consuming. Life is not about being a customer, but being a co-laborer for the sake of other people. Of saying to ourselves, man, I don't exist for me. And I need to hear that sermon more than anybody here, I promise. But I don't exist for me. 
I exist, especially in Jesus, for others. I exist for my kids and my wife and my neighbors and people and lost people. Look at what Paul says. He says in, in verse, let's pick it up in verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 12. He says, for the ministry of this service. Love this. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing. I love that. Overflow. What kind of overflowing are we looking for? We're looking for the overflow of other people giving thanksgivings to God. Man, that is awesome. We are looking for the overflow of other people giving thanks to God. So we're not just looking for our own thanks to God. We're not just looking for like that, that happy spiritual American life where, oh, I feel so good in God. No, 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 not just that. But we're looking for other people. In fact... I would say our joy in God increases when we see other people experience joy in God. Woo! I don't know if I'm going to have anything left in the tank for second service. Verse 13. He says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others why they long for you how good is it when people long for you because of your legacy thank you you're the reason why I'm giving thanks to God that is legacy man verse 14 they long for you, pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Wow. Wow is a Hebrew word. Can I get an amen? Wow. That means you can spell it back anyways. That's a really dumb, dumb joke. My pastor used to, he used to say that. Anyways, legacy, legacy. Paul's saying something profound. He's saying legacy is more important than luxury. And if you live in Corinth, that's saying something. Legacy is more important than luxury. Legacy is more important than luxury. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You're no fool if you give up your money, which is something you're not going to be able to take with you up to heaven. You do know that, right? Like there's no hearst that's followed by a U-Haul at, at funerals. Naked you came into this world. Naked you'll return. You'll go back to God with nothing except for the testimonies of those who were impacted by your ministry, by your generosity, by your legacy he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose and what you cannot lose is the ministry impact of your life upon the lives of other human beings because human beings are more important than material things legacy is more important than luxury this is interesting now I want to go just a little deeper on this. Dare I do it? I'll probably mess it up. We'll see. But I want you to think. Just use your head with me just for a moment. Paul 
What's Paul doing? What Paul is doing is Paul is trying to reconcile two worlds within the church, a Jewish world and a Gentile world. And the Jerusalem church was filled with primarily Jewish believers. And what they were struggling with is, can God's grace really save Gentile, uncircumcised people? Now, Paul needed the Jerusalem church to support his mission so that he could evangelize more people going as far as Spain. He needed the spiritual leadership backup of the Jerusalem church. And so what Paul is doing with these Gentile churches like the Corinthians and like the Thessalonians, he did the same thing with with the Thessalonians, is he went and he said, listen, what we're going to do is we're going to pull all this money together in the name of Jesus. We're going to take it to the Jewish poor believers. We're going to put it in their lap. And what I'm going to tell those Jerusalem people is, do you see what the gospel of God can do in people's lives? Do you see that, that Jesus can transform people's lives by faith alone? And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, it's important that you give so that these, these Jewish Christians will say, wow. The gospel of Jesus, by faith alone for both Jews and Gentiles, is awesome. And we want to support Paul's mission to Spain, his mission to the world to reach more people. In other words, beloved, hear me. Everything Paul's doing is evangelistic. The whole reason why he wants to give and why he challenges the church to give is so that more people can confess the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he needs the Jerusalem church to do that. That's why he's saying, I need them to give thanks. I need them to give glory to God for the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, yeah, man, what's the legacy I'm looking for? What kind of legacy is God calling me to? What's that look like? You know what it looks like? It looks like people coming to know Jesus. It looks like a ministry and disciples and followers who are finding the lost and who are redistributing their testimony, redistributing their treasure, redistributing their time and their efforts so that other people can meet Jesus Christ. That is the agenda of the Apostle Paul. That is the agenda of discipleship. That is the agenda of the New Testament. That is the agenda of the Great Commission. That is the agenda of all evangelistic efforts is we practice radical generosity so that more people can be reconciled to God through the one man who is God, Jesus Christ. Legacy, beloved, is more important than luxury. Legacy is more important than luxury. Abundance is more important than prosperity. And then finally, I love this point because it's the most practical point. The final reason why we should practice radical generosity is because intentional giving is better than irrational spending. Intentional giving is way better than irrational spending. You say... Now, what does Paul say practically? Like, how do I do this? Let's go back up to verse 7. Look at at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, which might be the most practical verse in all of the Bible on how to begin to ground your lifestyle and your life in generous giving. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Paul says this, Each one must give 
as he has decided. Now, if I could force you, I would have you, I would, you would defile your Bible right now. And you would circle that word, decided. That is such a critical word. Each one must give as he has decided. Because listen, I'll tell you, myself included, I grew up in a culture where people decide nothing about money ahead of time. You know what people do with their money in our culture? They just suddenly just start giving it randomly. Like a sweater, a shiny thing, you know? Like there's no decision. It's just compulsion. That's why each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, the Greek word for cheerful is the same word where we get our word hilarious from. So God loves a hilarious giver, a giver that's just kind of, ha, 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 ha. And so, of course, you're like, why are you doing that? I don't know what I'm doing in the second service. But, but I used to think, I used to think in church, because I grew up in church, I heard these verses over and over and over again. You always hear these verses. These are important verses for, for churches. And I always think, oh, no, like, I can only give into the offering plate if I'm hilarious about it. Like, I have to be laughing, or I have to have this emotion of cheer, like, or I shouldn't give. Which, by the way, as a pastor, that is not what it's saying. Can I get an amen? Right? You don't, you don't have to be hilarious to give to the church. What Paul is saying, though, is Paul is saying when you combine cheerful giver with decided in his heart, here's what God loves. God loves people who think through why they spend money. God loves people who have a plan. God loves people who think on purpose, who think intentionally. God does not like it when we live accidentally because accidental living leads to accidents in life, especially financially. What God is, it's so, this is such a God is our father, like leading us type verse. God is saying, here's how you deal with your money. You make decisions. You pray through. You think through why you do this. And God knows that for the believer who really thinks about why they give, you know why we're hilarious in our giving? Because we go, right, Jesus died for me. Oh my gosh, God gave me 100%. God gave me his one and only son in my place. The, the clean for the unclean, the, the righteous for the unrighteous, the one who took my sin and absorbed my sorrows. Oh my gosh, Jesus was buried. Oh my gosh, Jesus defeated death. Oh my gosh, I get to take this message to the world. I am hilarious with joy. I know exactly who I am. I know exactly whose I am. I know exactly how to do my family budget. I know exactly how to organize my finances. I organize it around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that mean I never get anything I like? No, of course not. Of course I get things I like. But the priority of my life becomes a joy of the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is not like everybody else in culture. Because everybody else that's trying to get your money in culture, they don't want you to think. Can I get an amen? They don't want you making decisions. They want you to give compulsively. You show up at... At Walgreens, man, and, and they don't want you to think at all. They want you to be irrational. God's the one person in your life who's going to come to you and say, no, no, no. 
I don't want you just to give, just to not be guilty or so that you'll just have your conscience clean. I want you to think through why. Be intentional. Don't be irrational. Be intentional. That'll lead to joy in the gospel. And God loves it when his people know exactly why they handle their money the way they handle it. Practically, I mean, this is the most practical verse because what God is telling us to do is have a budget. That's the greatest verse on budgeting you've ever seen right there. Has decided in his heart. Budget is a whip. You know, what we preachers like to say is that money makes a bad master but a great servant. Money makes a bad master but a great servant. And how do you make sure that money is not mastering you but you're mastering your money? You have a budget. Budget is a whip. You're like, whoosh, money, you are to go in the direction of the glory of God. Whoosh, money, you are to go in the direction of Jesus first. Whoosh, money, then we got to put milk in the fridge. Whoosh, money, we, then we got, well, we got to have Netflix so we can watch movies every now and then. Whoosh, say, uh, money, you got you to, you see what I mean? Budget is a whip. And that's why we have to have budgets. Because what we're doing as disciples is we're deciding what we're going to do with our money. We're making sure that God... And Jesus goes to the top. In the Old Testament, God said, listen, here's what I want you to do as my people. I want you to take the first fruits and give that to the temple. In other words, give the very best of what you have to me first. And then the rest is yours. So don't give, don't give, don't wait until like, well, is there anything left over? And then I'll give that to God. No, God says, give me your best. Put me at the top. I'm the priority. Think through it. Decide in your heart, not compulsively, but through the gospel. Be radically generous. Why? Because abundance is better than prosperity. Because legacy is better than luxury. Because intentional giving is better than irrational spending. Now let me give you a couple of points of application. And the first point of application is, okay, I'm ready to be radically generous. I know why I should. But how do I do that? Like, what's the measure? How do I begin even to measure what radical generosity looks like? And I believe the Bible gives us a baseline of what that looks like. The Bible talks about a tithe, a tithe, 10%. The first 10% of anything I make or have belongs to giving back for the gospel. Now, there's some tithing passages. I'm not going to read them, but I'll just list them so you can look these up later. These are all throughout the Bible. For example, in Genesis 14, verses 19 through 20, Abraham ties to Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ. That's a great passage because Melchizedek comes and delivers Abraham and, and, and proclaims God's deliverance of Abraham in battle. And so Abraham gives a tenth to Melchizedek. Also, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, where the prophet says, Bring the full tithe into my storehouse. In other words, give to the temple of God your first 10%. Now, what people say, rightly, is, well, that's Old Testament, and the temple's gone, and Jesus is the temple. But the principle of the temple is still the same because the purpose of the temple was that the glory of God might go out to the nations. Jesus is now the new temple by which the nations are to come to, and we tithe to Jesus in order to bring people to Jesus. Now, some people 
Theologically, they say the tithe is no longer binding on believers because we're in the age of grace. I don't ascribe to that particular theology, but I know a lot of God-fearing people who do. But I would just say this, that Matthew chapter 23, I think Jesus preaches a tithe in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23 where he says this. I don't have a slide for it, but listen carefully. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, Jesus was saying, it's good that you tithe. That's the right thing to do. But now you need to add to your tithing mercy and justice and righteousness so, and faithfulness. So, so Jesus, I think, actually ascribes to the tithe. But, but, you say, well, that's not my theology. I'm not going to change my theology because you're up there talking about it. That's cool. That's cool. I understand that. My brother used to say this. Hey, if you think you're under a grace and tithe no longer applies to you, well, that means that grace is giving you the grace to give more than a tithe. Can I get an amen? So I like that little line. But, but here's the truth is that I think no matter what you think, it's a good baseline. It's a good baseline. That's a good starting point. And God, for most of us, is calling calling us to give above and beyond a tithe. Like I give a tithe to my church and I also find a missionary to give to. I tithe in my church, but I also give to the poor. I tithe in my church, but I want to go above and beyond because I want to be radically generous. I want to be almost irrational if other people looked at my budget. They would think it's irrational because they don't understand the gospel yet. A tithe is a good baseline. Here's another good sign. I think I heard this from Tim Keller. He used to say to his church, he say, listen, you tithe. What's another sign that you're giving radically? You know you're giving radically when you feel it. You feel the burden of it. Does that make sense? Like, like ooh, I feel, I'm, I'm feeling the burden because of how much I'm giving. I actually, actually feel that I'm making a sacrifice. I feel like, like, wow, man, I'm, I'm really, really trusting God right now. Because the truth of the matter is, some of you might be like billionaires. I don't know if you are. Please talk to me afterwards if you are. But, but some people have a lot of money and a tithe. I mean, let's admit it's not too much out of their pocket. So some people are just really blessed. And so they need to go above and beyond just to feel something of what it means to give. Because what we're doing is we're reenacting the sacrifice of Jesus. Not perfectly certainly partially do you feel it and sometimes I think through you know if I didn't tithe what could I have what could you have if you didn't tithe could you have an extra vacation could you have an extra home could you have a boat on top of the two cars what are you losing to give back to be radically generous you see, it's, a, it's, a, it's an awesome principle, and again, it's rooted in the idea of the gospel. We are Christians. We're not going to heaven because we give to the church. We're not going to heaven because we give to the poor. We're not, going, we're, not, we're not buying our way out of hell. The reason why we're going to heaven is because Jesus gave us everything by faith alone in him. Never hear me say, and Crosspoint would never say to anybody, well, you don't get to go to heaven. 
You're no further away from heaven if you never gave to the church as long as you believe in Jesus Christ. That's the truth. But what God's, as your father, and he is your father in Jesus, as your father, he's leading you to a life of abundance. And the vision that God has for your life is not that you're a customer of his products, but that you're a co-laborer in his mission. The vision that God has for your life is not that you would be a consumer, but that you would get the blessing of being a contributor. The, the vision that God has for your life is your legacy in the lives of other people. And that is something that money cannot buy. And the best things that we get in this life are things that money could never buy. You can't buy love. You can't buy community. You can't buy salvation. And so why do we hang so tightly to money when it can't buy us the most important things that God gives to us? Let it go, man. Let it go. Be radically generous. Are you tithing to your church? Maybe, maybe you're visiting today. You're going to go to another church. Is that something that, that as a Christian you've considered? If you can't, you're like, man, if I took 10% right now, it would destroy me economically. Are you making decisions so that you can as quickly as possible get to that baseline? Are you a generous person? And when you and I find ourselves being stingy, we just have to ask ourselves, why is that? Maybe I need to go back to some Bible verses. Maybe I need to rehearse the gospel in my life. But listen, this is a game changer. This is a change maker in your life. This is a change maker in the lives of other people. If all of us commit ourselves to being radically generous for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just teach the word and to talk about this, Lord. Generosity at the end of the day is not a burden. It's a, it's a, it's a blessing. You, God, are the great giver. We could never reenact exactly all that you've given to us in creation, all that you've given to us in redemption. Lord, the first thing I would ask for, for our congregation, for our church, is, is no sense of guilt, but the freedom of grace, the absolute joy of knowing that we're safe and sound by faith in Jesus. The second thing I would pray for, Lord, is that you would give us a calling, each of us individually, and then as families, that you give us a calling in this world, that our life would be lived on purpose, that our life would be lived not accidentally but intentionally. That we'd say as families and as followers, this is what I believe. And I'm going to align my daily values to what I believe. I'm going to align my action to this gift that I've received in Jesus Christ. So Lord... Add to this sermon your blessing. Add to this sermon your encouragement. Add to this sermon your own conviction mingled with your love and comfort. And Lord, may we all, especially as a community, be radically generous. I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.